Welcome to Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life, a broadcast of Purdue University Extension, where we cut through the hype, explore the science behind food and nutrition, and provide practical tips for incorporating healthful strategies into everyday life. Welcome to Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. Today's question is, what value does wine have in our diet and in our lives? Is it all it's chalked up to be? Tanya and Monica here today in our virtual studio, joined by Dr. Christian Butska. And he is a professor of enology, which is the science of wine. He is Purdue's first senior university fellow for innovation and entrepreneurship and has a 30-year career in the American wine industry as an extension specialist and a commercial winemaker. And we just want to remind you all that this podcast brings you the best information so you can make choices about your health. Um, And so that's what we are here today to talk about all things wine. But before we jump into these, Dr. Butchka, um, I want to dig into a little bit of your bio. Can you share a little bit about what this Fellow for Innovation and Entrepreneurship is about? I know Purdue is rapidly expanding its programs and services to really cater and help um, grow entrepreneurs. So can you share with our listeners a little bit about that? Uh, certainly, I'd be delighted to. Uh, thank you, by the way, for, for having me on your program. Uh, this, is, this is very exciting. Uh, and uh, yeah, so besides being being the wine professor at Purdue, I'm also taking care of a uh, kind of changing the culture of academia and encouraging professors, young and old, uh, and their graduate students and undergraduate students to look at what impact their research could have on society. Uh, and uh, part of creating impact is uh, looking at commercialization of research. Uh, that sounds maybe a little bit harsh and uh, sounds a little bit like we all make want to make money. But uh, the fact is, um, if we can turn some of those uh, fantastic research ideas into something that our local stakeholders really want and need and occasionally willing to pay money for, I think uh, that's really the best of what a land-grant university, what a public university can can offer in modern times. So we have uh, kind of shifted a little bit uh, and uh, giving given uh, an opportunity now, as I said, to our faculty members, to our students, uh, to become entrepreneurs themselves or to be engaged in startup companies or licensing their technology that they're developing. So I think that's an exciting change in academic culture. As I said, I'm uh, very happy to be part of that. Yeah, that is that is amazing because that's one of the things that, you know, Monica and I are so privileged to be so close to the university and enmeshed in in um, accessing that research every day. But for the layperson, it's kind of like this hidden gem of knowledge that takes some time to get out and away from the research institution sometimes. Um, so, Your bio also says you have been a winemaker for 30 years. Can you tell us about that journey? How did you get here? Uh, That's that's an interesting question. Yes, indeed. I've spent uh, my entire career working with wine, uh, but uh, I'm uh, actually an engineer by training, more of a chemical engineer by training. Originally did my graduate work more into fuel alcohol and uh, beverage alcohol as well, and ended up uh, working in the wine industry, um, first in California, then in, in New England, uh, now here in the Midwest. And then, of course, as a very global industry. I was just in, uh, in Israel 
before uh, it was attacked uh, uh, last May. Uh, and uh, basically in the environment where wine was made 10,000 years ago. So I got into an industry that has very long traditions of, of production. And because I'm an engineer, um, I'm sitting on the on the production end of things. So I advise wineries. Uh, I teach winemaking uh, courses uh, for people to uh, to uh, uh, start winery or wineries or make uh, make better wine, um, uh, adjust to a changing market for wine. Uh, as well, but I also teach a very large class on wine appreciation here at Purdue, and so many thousands of students have gone uh, through my classes uh, here and and learned about uh, wine, wine making, uh, wine and health, um, a topic that we're covering here. Although I'm not a medical doctor, I, I certainly have a have a good idea of um, how uh, perspectives on wine uh, and health uh, have changed over the years. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, about this uh, here today. So, so that's that's kind of where I'm coming from, from uh, having chosen a career in a very traditional field that has really sent me around the world uh, to explore um, cultures, production technologies, traditions, and and all that. So, a very very exciting part of modern agriculture and ancient agriculture that is. Uh huh. And so. Part of me wants to ask you if you've been in California, New England, and now Indiana, which would you prefer? But don't answer that, okay? Because it <laughs> might hurt my feelings. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, when you know, sometimes the Westerners are a little bit bit shy about the accomplishments that they have made in in the world of wine. You know, we are a wine produ producing state here in in Indiana, and so are all the other. Midwestern states around us here. In fact, every single one of our 50 states has a small wine industry. And wherever you uh, go um, across the country, you have a chance to visit a little winery, um, sample some local artisan products, um, listen to a concert, get married, uh, whatever you want to do. And so that's a big part <laughs> of American wine culture. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be out in California. Um, it's important, in fact, that it is local and that is appreciated for for being locally made. Yes, and I appreciate that emphasis on local agritourism and just what are we doing for our own communities. So one last question for you. Um, so you, you shared just now a little bit about your journey about coming to Purdue and how you want to really work about how we can become entrepreneurs and really get that research out there. Um, beyond the walls of the research institution. And that's really part of the mission of Extension, right? We, our tagline is we bring the university to the people. So how does this all translate to your role as an Extension specialist? What does that specifically look like? Uh, yeah, that, that's uh, again, uh, really something I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to, to, to comment on as Extension, of course, is going through a little bit of a transition. You know, we kind of have to reinvent uh, cooperative Extension as something that has been around uh, for more than 100 years. But, uh, but uh, we also want to make sure that we stay relevant. And so when I started an Extension 30 years ago, well, you would do your Extension work. You would visit... Uh, uh, the stakeholders, in my case, the wineries um, across the state, you would create workshops. I had one of the very first websites on wine um, uh, that was ever created, uh, and certainly the first extension website. 
Um, so technology has changed over the years. And of course, back in my days when I started, you know, the extension agent was the only go-to point really other than your, your colleagues and neighbors uh, that you could call up and ask for advice. Now, probably the first way of what people are doing is uh, Googling things or using ChatGPT to, to find some solution to their problems. Um, but we stay relevant as still being the independent, uh, you know, person expert that gives advice um, on all kinds of different topics uh, as it independently uh, of any trends or uh, you know product uh, solutions that that uh, that the supply industry might might offer you for example so getting second opinions on technology on purchases uh, that still makes extension specialists uh, very relevant uh, but uh, back in the days you know you would do your research um, and you with your graduate students for example and then you would publish it and then you would just let other people uh, take care of it, use it. In my case, I, we developed a lot of uh, analysis uh, methods for, for the wine industry. Uh, and, and that was great. You know, that was the way it worked. We, the university did the, did the research and the industry applied it. And nowadays, we see more opportunity uh, to also step into the commercialization realm, as I, as I said, where we actually starting companies that can provide those services. Uh, where people, again, um, if they find us relevant, if they if we really produce things that people need and want, they're willing to pay money for. And as you know, uh, budgets for extension uh, have been stagnant for, for many, many decades. Uh, and so to finance our efforts, uh, we, we need to uh, also look at commercializing some of the work, but we also, as extension, uh, as an extension system, need to be very careful that we are catering uh, to stakeholders that don't have the money to pay for our services. So a lot of social work, a lot of youth development work um, still needs to be in place and needs to be uh, supported. So we, I think in the future, and that might be the future of extension, we'll have a hybrid, a mix of where extension actually provides some paid services, as well as doing traditional work um, to support uh, stakeholders in need. So I think uh, that's an exciting way of reinventing extension and again, making it relevant for the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you made a lot of good points in there. Um, so, so talking about research, can you first talk to us broadly about your re the research behind wine? What exactly is being measured? How is that measured? Um, in in um, as it relates to the the different components that may impact health. Yeah, certainly. You know, wine is uh, arguably the most complex of all food and beverages. There are thousands of different components involved, some of them coming from the grape, uh, some of them coming from the fermentation process. We, I mentioned, you know, we've been making wine as humans for, for 10,000 years. Um, and interestingly enough, the, the plant, Vitis vinifera, the, uh, the grapevine, uh, is still the same plant that we're using today in different varieties, you know, Chardonnay, Cabernet, Tremonette, uh, you name it, different different uh, grape varieties. But this plant is still essentially the same, and so is the microbe that we're using. Uh, it's Saccharomyces cerevisiae, the uh, sugar fungus that we're using for making wine and beer and bourbon and bread. Um, still the very same organism as 10,000 years ago. Um, and so uh, with, with the fermentation process, uh, increasing the number of flavors that we smell or taste, 
the aromas. Uh, and in addition to that, the aging process. You know, we age wine often in, in oak barrels, for example. We let it sit for months, for years sometimes, to develop particular characters, again, that makes wine so different from a glass of grape juice for example. And so again, the complexity of what we have in wine is quite extraordinary and analyzing those components that are either relevant for um, our enjoyment when we smell a glass of wine or when we taste it, or those components that can be possibly beneficial to our health or that can be detrimental to our health. So again, you can imagine if you have a natural product with so many components in them, um, some are good, some are bad, some are ugly, uh, but again, we have a lot of experience enjoying wine, and we can talk a little bit about the mix between the chemical composition uh, that scientists often focus on and the more holistic uh, experience that an actual wine consumer has uh, tasting a glass of wine. The associations that you have when you smell it, the associations with traveling to foreign places or local places, um, the enjoyment that you're getting uh, that goes far beyond just uh, increasing longevity, for example, by, by consuming uh, a product that contains certain components with, with pharmaceutical uh, potential. Uh-huh. So, so you mentioned the different kinds of wine, and I feel like there's this unspoken conception that true wine connoisseurs will drink dry wine, and if you go for the sweet wine, you're just unrefined, right? So first, can you tell us what is dry wine? Like, how does it get that name? And <laughs> and is this conception true? And why is that? So let, uh, me, back, let me break those <laughs> questions back down. What yeah, is no, dry wine? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let me let me let me just refute your 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 your, your statement. Of course, uh, in, uh, the sophistication of uh, an individual is not defined by their liking uh, for wine, or or not even necessary. Uh, at all. So when it comes to the description of what a wine tastes like, we often use that old term dry, which means the wine is not sweet. So it has no, uh, as the winemaker would say, residual sugar left. It uh, just doesn't taste, doesn't taste sweet uh, at all. Opposite wines uh, uh, that, that, uh, that have a little bit of sugar left and, and therefore for taste sweet. And so traditional European wines and if you look again 10,000 years ago, um, you take grape juice, um, you have yeast that is floating around uh, everywhere in the environment long before we knew it even existed. And that yeast eats all the sugar in the grape uh, juice and turns it into alcohol. And traditionally, you had no way of controlling this. So all the sugar was con transformed into, into alcohol and carbon dioxide gas that leaves the tank usually. Uh, the gas that we keep when we bake bread that raises the dough, where the alcohol actually leaves the bakery. Same process, though. Uh, and uh, But in the olden days, we had no control of stopping a fermentation or making a sweet wine, filtering it. Uh, so all the wines were dry. And so traditional European styles from Italy, from France, from Spain, uh, they're all dry. Uh, and, uh, you know, because those industries are often thousands of years old or individual wineries are hundreds and hundreds of years old, uh, you know, a lot of the traditional perception of what wine should be dates back to those days. Um, but um, here in Indiana today, the most popular wines, the wines that sell the best, that have the biggest economic impact on our communities uh, are often sweet. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. Now, 
from a nutritional perspective, probably too much sugar is, is never great. But <laughs> but nonetheless, a um, a sweet wine can be just as sophisticated as a dry wine. Uh, and uh, as I said here, our wines in the Midwest are uh, often sweet, but that also doesn't mean that you can't find some spectacular dry wines. Uh, our wineries here in Indiana, in the Midwest, usually offer you a very wide array uh, of sweet dry wines, sparkling wines, red, white, pink, orange, uh, whatever customers want, our winemakers make. And so that's uh, kind of the philosophy that I teach my students in class. It's always up to you as an individual what you uh, like to drink. It's not up to me as the wine professor or some fancy wine critic or a magazine or anybody else to tell you what, what you have to like. That's why you go to a winery and you taste through all those wines uh, and then you find something that you personally like. Here in Indiana, a, a retailer told me the most popular wine right now is a mint melon flavored Moscato. Uh, and uh, again, if you would tell this to a traditional French winemaker, they would probably go go crazy <laughs> about uh, having having a, a flavored wine and, 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 and possibly a sweet wine um, at that as well. But hey, you can't beat the fact that people love that stuff and, and they buy it. And, uh, and that creates jobs, that creates opportunities, particularly in rural Indiana. Uh, and, uh, and again, you know, that's, that's what we have to look at. We don't have to look at tradition. We can look at traditions. It's always good to kind of uh, do that, not to reinvent the wheel when it comes to production practices. But uh, we really need to be as winemakers. And so I'm speaking as a winemaker here, we need to be flexible. We need to make the wines that people love to drink, to buy, and not necessarily what we personally like as winemakers or what, again, some, some uh, critic, critic uh, you know, in, in New York City likes. So uh, that's the way um, that goes. Okay, there you go, folks. If it pleases your palate, then it, that's the one you stick with. But shifting gears a little bit, um, thinking about the health benefits of wine, um, which is what prompted this podcast. So, you know, there's there was years ago a study in the Mediterranean region and their diet patterns, and um, which includes consuming red wine. And folks in that region tend to have better health outcomes than we do here in the United States. Of course, we all know, and those who regularly listen to us know that it's not just any one thing that creates or takes away from health, right? But um, as we tend to do in research, we honed in on that one thing. And so is red wine, or is it just red wine, that actually um, does it translate to a healthy addition to the American lifestyle? If we're talking purely about health, I know you've talked a lot about like the social component of it, which is certainly really important. But if we're just talking about biology, where would you go with that? Yeah, so it's funny. I I, I listened to a to a, a, a CNN segment yesterday from from Dr. Gupta uh, uh, giving us kind of an overview of how the perception of alcohol consumption has has changed over the uh, past uh, decades and 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 past years. And um, I guess it reminded us too that that uh, only about two thirds of Americans drink alcohol at all, in, in, including wine. Um, so a good good portion of the population doesn't drink anything at all, and Indiana is, has a relatively low 
um, wine consumption altogether, probably about a couple of gallons a year per capita here, so lower than the average American, uh, actually. But uh, but nonetheless, uh, it was when I started in the industry in the early 90s that uh, kind of the news broke that people, scientists, had, had tried to figure out why uh, the so-called French paradox um, existed. The fact that the French um, smoked back then a lot, uh, they were eating fatty food, fatty cheeses, liver pate, you know, all those things that we traditionally at that time associated with, with heart disease and, and clogging one's arteries with too much, uh, eating too much saturated fat and all those things. And so um, at the same time, though, uh, the French had a much uh, larger life expectancy and a much lower rate of heart disease heart attack, stroke, and so on, than the Americans had. And so people tried to figure out why that was. And one of the topics that came up that was researched was, hey, the French drink a lot of wine. You know, they drink uh, whatever it is uh, back in those days, probably five, six times at least as much wine as the average American would drink. And at the same time, given their seemingly bad eating habits, they were still living longer than, than we do. And of course, they still do. Uh, but uh, the uh, decrease in life expectancy in the U.S. is too much of a political issue uh, to comment on that. But but nonetheless, back in those days, scientists tried to identify what in wine could it be uh, that causes uh, greater longevity uh, in, in in the French population and the Mediterranean population, you know, at large, the Italians and so on. That also the Spanish that drink a lot of wine historically. Not so much anymore, actually. But, uh, and so then components were identified, uh, phenolic components. Those are the uh, kind of ring structure uh, chemicals in wine that are responsible for the astringency of wine, that puckery feeling you get when you drink a glass of red wine. The color of red wine itself uh, is, uh, those are phenolic uh, materials. Those are located in the skins and in the seeds of grapes. That's if you ever eat grapes with, with seeds on them, you know that they're kind of a little bitter tasting. Um, and, uh, and so because red wine is high in those phenolic components, that's the way, and that goes a little, little far, maybe another, another time we talk about wine production, um, uh, red wine grapes are extracted to get the color out. And with that, you get a lot of phenolic components out of the seeds, out of the skins, they end up in the wine, uh, creating those those beautifully colored wines. Uh, but it turned out that some of those components um, also act as antioxidants. And so the theory came about that uh, if you have a lot of antioxidants in a glass of wine, and by the way, there are certain amounts of those in white wines as well, uh, not as not as concentrated as in red wines because of the production process. Uh, but uh, the idea was that those antioxidants also prevent the uh, cholesterol in our arteries from oxidizing and depositing, which traditionally is one of those reasons why we get a heart attack. You know, your, your arteries getting getting clogged up and uh, and boom. Um, so, so that was for many years the idea, and many researchers built their careers on trying to really figure out what was going on. Is this really true? People tried to figure out what is the best wine to drink. Um, it extended to chocolate and blueberries and all kinds of other products that are high in those polyphenolic materials. People focused on one particular component called resveratrol, uh, a really minor component in 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 grapes and and in wine, but nonetheless, uh, because research was done on that component, people even tried to turn this into a pill form. 
there was a company that that was selling resveratrol as a nutrient supplement, but it turned out to have so many side effects that they took it off the market. Um, but again, since the early 1990s, that was the idea that a glass or two of wine, wine consumed in moderation, might actually be good for you. And of course, that made a lot of people very happy, particularly those selling wine. Um, you know, but the consumers, you know, they felt good about themselves. They're like, oh, you know, I have a glass of wine. And even though it's alcohol, uh, maybe it helps uh, with my diet, helps my longevity. Uh, so you're doing something slightly sinful uh, in uh, traditional ways, um, uh, considering traditional ways, if you look at prohibition here in America, uh, uh, suddenly it was something, hey, that, that glass of wine might actually be good for me, reduce my rate of heart, heart disease and all that. So that, that was valid for, for, for almost three decades. But in more recent years, <clears throat> um, alcohol's uh, ability to increase the risk of cancer has really come to the forefront. And so nowadays, the research really shows that any amount of alcohol consumed, be that from wine or beer or whiskey or whatever it is, um, increases, even if just very slightly, your chance of cancer. Um, so that's, that's again, the, the bottom line that we have today, that, uh, wine is not good for your health per se. It might increase certain risk of certain cancers, but uh, nonetheless, it still might increase your wellness, your happiness, uh, your longevity, um, or even if it doesn't increase your longevity, if you live a full and rich life, and again, use wine as a kind of a social tool to encourage travel, to encourage social interactions. Um, I think you get a lot more out of your life uh, than just uh, turning turning a hundred. Uh, and uh, I think that's that's uh, an important consideration. But it also means we are not encouraging people to drink wine um, to uh, for health. Um, uh, we just you know advise that it is a uh, uh, an alcoholic beverage, and you should consume not too much of it, um, and and that's that's just the way it is today. So sorry, you know, it's not as as exciting as it as it used to be. That drinking a glass or two, uh, and it was always you know two for men, one for women. Given given the lower lower body weight, uh, uh, typically um, that that was recommended for for a number of years. So we've gotten gone away, it seems, a little bit from that. But nonetheless, that doesn't make wine any any less enjoyable, really. Uh, for the reasons I, I think I pointed out. Mm -hmm. You know, and that was one of the things I had in my notes to kind of make a comment on, because I also do a fair amount of work in mental health. And we talk a lot about how valuable um, social connections are and how they can buffer stress and the negative impacts of stress on the body. And um, whether it was really the wine itself or those connections and um you know positive interactions that happened because of it that was really given us this and it's so hard right in health research to tease those things apart um i don't know if you have any comments on that or um kind of you've said the conclusion there yeah All yeah right. i mean I, I think you're absolutely right our lives are impacted influenced by so many different factors uh, social factors environmental factors what we eat, what we drink, and it's hard to separate those things out. And and yeah, sometimes it's tempting to find that solution and 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 you know make this. Particularly again, if there's an economic interest behind that, and then there's no doubt 
um, uh, there, there was, uh, um, particularly after the old 90 minutes uh, segment on, on the French paradox back in 1991, uh, the, the red wine consumption kind of went through the roof afterwards because people were excited uh, and people who hadn't even tried wine um, we're suddenly getting into it because of the potential health uh, health benefits. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, uh, you know, it, again, it's 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 a matter of of deciding uh, for yourself of what you what you want. Again, I would say as a scientist, a lot of great research ideas have come out of sitting around the table with some colleagues over a glass of wine and brainstorming, um, you know, new 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 project. But we also realize that. A lot of car accidents, um, a lot of alcoholism still exists affecting family members and friends and everybody else. So we can't deny that those traditional um, uh, negative impacts of wine, of, of alcohol in general, still exist. And, you know, if you look at the history of prohibition here between 1919 and 1933, you know, a lot of that was socially driven because of the issues with alcohol abuse um, in the past. So that, that can't be denied. We also, as the, as, the, as the wine industry is facing the challenge now of uh, the anti-obesity drugs, uh, not just reducing the uh, desire to eat, but also the desire to drink, which again can be you know, a possible benefit for people abusing alcohol, uh, but it will also actually have a very substantial impact on the wine industry as people might be drinking uh, less, and and the industry has been seeing uh, decreases in consumption over the past few years, uh, despite the fact that the economy is actually doing quite well, and wine consumption, as wine is a rather expensive beverage, um, is always closely related. If people have more disposable income, they also spend it on more good wine. Yeah. So, so kind of related to my question earlier about dry versus sweet, and does that really make one better than the other. So how closely is price tied to, I'm going to use air quotes here, to make good wine? Like what what goes in that drives up a price of a bottle of wine? Well, the uh, price of a bottle of wine is determined by a, a number of factors. One is that it is actually quite expensive to make wine. Growing grapes is, is expensive. It's a crop that needs a lot of personal attention, lots of hand uh, handling, hand harvesting. Wine barrels are expensive. Uh, the ingredients are expensive. So wine is a, is a quite expensive product to make. And when you buy a bottle, you actually get usually a pretty good value because the winemaker has put a lot of effort um, into the product. Now, some wineries are obviously larger than others. So if you buy a bottle from a you know, huge operation out in California, um, wineries that look more like, like, uh, like oil refineries in size, but you know, th- they make the wine that you can buy here in the grocery store or, or in, the, in the pharmacy uh, store, you know, a couple of bottles for $10 or so. Um, a lot of those wines my students can afford <laughs> to, <laughs> to buy. And, and again, you know, often those wines are actually quite well made because they're made on a big scale and more efficiently. Um, they're, they're typically a pretty good value. But wine, um, again, has uh, evolved and the prices you pay for wine are often based on marketing, on tradition, of brand image. Uh, so if you go to a fancier wine store, um, you'll see obviously a lot of what the co- professionals call price points, you know, where the wine is positioned on the shelf, uh, how much you have to pay. So you can buy a bottle for $3, you can buy one for 30 you can buy one for 300 you can buy one for $3,000. 
just for one bottle. And so depending, again, on your disposable income, you can buy this. Now, are you getting uh, you know, a thousandfold enjoyment out of buying a $3,000 bottle over the $3 bottle? Probably not. But, you know, as it is with almost anything in life, if people are willing to pay a high price for a product, you know, you know there, there might be something there that you can't find in the in the cheaper versions. But again, it's a little bit like wearing designer clothes. At the end of the day, it's still just clothes. And, and, and at the end of the day, the $3,000 bottle of, you know, really fancy French wine, for example, you know, still is fermented grape juice. And so... It, so, yeah. Yeah, okay. So that's kind of what I was getting at. There's not something significantly different in the process that, that results in having a higher level of these um, antioxidant compounds or in, you know, stuff like that that people should really be thinking about. Not really. There, there are some grape varieties that have higher phenolic content than others. Um, Petite Syrah is a variety out in California, you know, Cabernet traditionally. Uh, wine grapes tend to be very small in diameter. You know, table grapes that we eat in the, from the grocery store, they're typically very large and they're, they're bred and, and, and grown that way. Uh, wine grapes have a lot of seeds. They're very small because if you have a small berry, uh, the skin around it uh, you know, makes up a large portion of the, of the grape. And that, again, gives the opportunity to extract some of those phenolics from the skins if you have a lot of little seeds, again, you can extract those. So, so that makes a difference. And uh, the price is often impacted by uh, where the grapes are grown. Now, for example, uh, an acre of vineyard land nowadays in, in Napa Valley in California, the most famous of the American um, viticultural areas, as we call them, uh, is probably a million dollars by now. Hmm. So growing four tons of Cabernet in Napa and the land cost you a million dollars from four tons of grapes, by the way, you get um, about 750 bottles of wine per ton. So that's about 3,000 uh, bottles, right? If my calculation is right here, um, 3,000 bottles you get in a given year out of an investment of a million dollars. And that's not even including the actual farming cost. doesn't include a wine barrel that holds 300 bottles but probably cost you $1,500 to purchase these days. So that means that for every bottle of wine that goes into that barrel, $5 is just spent on the oak flavor alone in it. And you know, we're not talking about equipment. And again, the aging process that in the case of red wine typically takes at least a couple of years, during which time the winemaker has no income. Um, the corks, some of the fancy corks can cost a couple of dollars these days and some really fancy bottles. So the labels, you know, everything, the packaging, the marketing, everything is, is you know, depending on, on, on uh, where the grapes are grown, how fancy the package is. So that, that explains some of the price differences. But the enjoyment often, again, comes from the association that you have with who you're drinking it with, where you're drinking it, uh, what you're eating with it. And, and that often completely overshadows really how much the wine was. And when we do blind tastings uh, where you don't know what you're actually drinking, you don't see the label, you don't know the price, um, it's surprising often how you know, much, much more affordable wines fare uh, just as well as, as some really expensive ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of red wine and the infamous red wine headache, is there something in there that um, is spurring these that certain persons are sensitive to, or can you speak about that? 
certainly, as, as I said in the beginning, wine is a highly complex uh, beverage with thousands of different components in there. And some of those can trigger certain allergic reactions. Um, they possibly can trigger headaches. Uh, the headaches and the research has never really been that conclusive on it. M more recently, actually, research came out that some of those phenolic components um, can be related to uh, the, the the appearance of of, of headaches, um, as you can imagine, in in my career and 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 uh, you know throughout my life, I've tasted quite a few bottles of wine, and I too on occasion get a headache, but I've never really been able to completely connect uh, which wines truly give me a headache. Often it's a matter of uh, how dehydrated you are yourself if you drink not enough enough uh, water with your wine. Uh, some people might be allergic against histamines, you know, that cause all kinds of other reactions um, coming coming from other products, food products uh, as well. Uh, the sulfites have always been a focus because they're mentioned on the label. It's a preservative that we have been using again for practically thousands of years in the making of wine. Uh, but, uh, but there's no clear connection to it. But a lot of research on wine that could be done really isn't done because there's not a lot of money to do research on wine, uh, even though it's interesting for the consumers. Um, you know, people people don't uh, don't necessarily have the resources researchers that is um, to to dig deeper into those into those causes. But again, there are different allergens in wine. There are proteins in wine. Uh, there are sometimes you know other residues in wine that we don't even know about. So uh, again, there's no clear answer. But I, I always say, drink a lot of water. Um, and uh, and you know, if you do have a slight headache, enjoying a glass of wine. Uh, well, then take a Tylenol or something like that. You know, be prepared if you're if you're particularly sensitive, or don't drink as much. Often, overindulgence uh, causes the biggest biggest problems, and uh, and that needs to be needs to be addressed uh, as uh, as well. So so yeah. And and by the way, often I hear, oh, the Europeans, you know, their wines never give me any give me any headaches. Uh, wine production globally is almost identical wherever you go. The the equipment the yeasts the grapes it, it, it's all very very similar surprisingly similar and um, uh, that means the amount of sulfites for example that are used in commercial wines are very similar um, around the world and there are no no very big differences in but again you know sometimes people drink the wine in a very different environment um, eating a different diet if you were for example vacationing in, in, in Europe somewhere and then uh, when you do the same back home, uh, you might have a very different experience. But uh, but again, no no clear solution to avoiding wine uh, wine headaches uh, in general. Be that with red wines or white wines. Yeah, no. Again, you know, it's uh, and again, you know, if you if you do get a headache, um, try a different bottle of wine. Uh, maybe it is the composition of that particular wine. And and again, you know, that's that's my recommendation. But people often ask me, "Oh, you're the wine professor. What bottle of wine should I buy?" And I would say, I have no idea, you know, I'm not picking your spouse either. So don't ask me uh, or any other expert of what you personally would like to drink. I can only tell you that there are probably more than a million different wines made around the world each year. And so I suggest, you know, taste something different every time you have a wine um, because life is short and you should drink the best wines you can. Okay, so what I understand you to say is that winemaking processes around the world are the same. Even though there are many varieties of grapes and they're growing in different climates and different regions, they still basically have the same compounds, the same components. So 
we're getting virtual we're not getting something that's really drastically different from one region to the next um yes they have some potential health promoting benefits but we need to with everything use them in moderation right i don't just go eat like 20 ounces of chocolate every day because i think it's going to help my heart um and drink it for enjoyment i feel like that's my bottom line that i'm getting from you like yeah it might help your heart but really just focus on the joy of it if it's something that you do enjoy Yes, I think that, that that's exactly right. You know, again, it, it, there's no such thing as 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 moderation when it now comes, you know, to the um, potential increase in, in in certain health risks. But but again, it is that actually moderation that is good for you. That uh, again allows you to do a few things, contemplate uh, life, and and have social interactions that that uh, make all this. I think um, um, uh, uh, have make wine culture a, a nice part of one's life, and uh, and so that's kind of yeah my recommendation. That's my that's my personal lifestyle too. You know, having having a glass of wine um, in the evening and enjoying that and appreciating. You know, that's what I teach here at Purdue: wine appreciation, the appreciation for the farmers, uh, for the producers that actually make the product. That really gives you a, a better idea and it kind of avoids uh, abusing the product. And that's what I teach my students. Uh, you know, th this is not the the material for for binge drinking. If you really understand how much labor, how much love goes into the production of this, um, if you even go out there and do an internship and and try it yourself or making wine at home, um, you really uh, develop appreciation for the product, and that in turn means you're using it in moderation and and you're truly uh, savoring it while you're while you're while you're um, drinking it. Well, we appreciate you being here with us today and sharing. This has been very um, educational for me. So as we close, I just have to ask you, what is your preferred wine? What is my preferred wine? Uh, well, whatever uh, bottle you're paying for. But no, I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, the enjoyment really for me comes from traveling around the world and, and tasting uh, local wines um, and eating the local foods, exploring uh, new foods, and and talking to the producers. Again, you can have that experience traveling all the way to, to uh, you know the old world, the, to you know the places that have made wine for thousands of years, um, or you can travel you know twenty minutes outside of your your town here in Indiana and have the same uh, delightful experience. So. Uh, that's what it's all about: diversity. Taste something new. Don't taste the same wine twice, uh, and um, and that way you kind of continuously have that excitement, that sense of adventure, exploring, trying something new, uh, and learning something new about wine. Um, and and that's again to to answer your question. I don't have a preferred wine. It is the wine that's in front of me in my glass. <laughs> Okay. Well, you know, again, it, it's a personal preference, what, what, whatever it is. And, and again, some wines are food wines. Some wines are good when, when you have a meal and you typically choose those to, to balance out, you know, whatever you're eating with that wine. But, but there are also those sipping wines, the tasting room wines, you know, the wines that you enjoy sitting on the porch or in front of the fireplace or whatever you do. Um, uh, and, uh, and again, there are different, different wines for different, uh, parts of your of your life that you can enjoy and 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 you know develop a, an appreciation for even if you if you don't necessarily like them um outright and so folks can actually take um your wine appreciation class i see in my notes that you have a wine appreciation 
Um, there's a wine appreciation certificate that folks can get through Purdue Online. And that is correct. Uh, that's the general class that I'm teaching. In fact, right now I have 754 students, undergraduate students here in Purdue in my class. Um, and in the fall, I teach it, teach it on campus uh, live. And, and right now I'm teaching it online. But that class is also available for uh, the general publics, and, and you end up with an actually a wine appreciation certificate. Uh, and I also offer the Purdue winemaking certificate. So the appreciation part is, is more, again, an introduction to wine and wine production around the world. Um, the winemaking certificate is more for professional winemakers or people who want to become professional winemakers to understand all the implications of how to run a winery um, and to make some really good wine. And both of those are available through Purdue Online. They're virtual or they're in person. They are virtual. Uh, again, with uh, having me sit here, and and uh, I'm a real person, so you can visit me, you can uh, talk to me, you can write me, and uh, uh, I tell my wine making certificate um, graduates, you know, you have me as a resource as long as I'm around. And again, that makes Purdue as the land-grant university here really uh, special. You know, we, we're, we're, we're real people, real extension people uh, that you can rely on uh, any, any day of the week. Perfect. So how else can folks connect with you? Do you have other resources that you wanted to share? Uh, well, again, if you, have a, if you have a general question or if you want to visit our, our wine cellar at Purdue, um, just you know, Google wine and Purdue and you'll uh, inevitably come, come across uh, my name and, and, and my program. So again, we can give advice for, uh, to professionals. We can give advice to people interested in starting a winery. Uh, we can uh, give advice to, to people who just want to explore wine. Um, I often travel with, um, with students, with professionals, and maybe in the future we'll pull uh, some more wine travel for alumni or for the general public uh, together as well. Those experiences um, are often, uh, again, quite uh, life-changing, transformative, as we, as we say in education these days. You know, traveling together, sitting uh, on a bus for a week and exploring uh, a wine region and talk wine and life uh, in general, I mean, those are things that can be can be quite enjoyable. And, and again, Purdue is organizing some of those as well. Oh, that sounds so fantastic. I'm missing out. Okay, so I have that your website is wineprofessor.org and they can find you on Instagram at Boiler Wine. Right. Did I have that's correct. The, correct? the at Boiler Wine uh, is is our uh, wine class uh, um, Instagram uh, website. So you can see a little bit. Uh, you see some students, Purdue students, actually tasting wine and and uh, expressing their own opinions on on what they're tasting. So that kind of is, is kind of cute and eye opening at the same time. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Buska, for joining us today. Um, folks, um, I think you know how to reach out. If you have questions about anything wine, you have your new connection here. So thank you for so much for joining us for this episode of Bite by Bite Nutrition for Life. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a favorite wine, hop on over and leave us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, remember to ask questions, challenge the myths, and stay true to you. Mm -hmm.